0: Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History.
0: Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hello and thank you for joining me for this very special bonus episode of the podcast. Last night we recorded a YouTube live presentation of all about the Battle of Passchendaele This is one of the most intriguing and fascinating and horrific battles of the First World War. And we did a full breakdown of it in our YouTube Live. And so I wanted to bring you the audio of that if you're listening on the podcast. Obviously, it's going to be much better to watch the video version, so I'd encourage you to go to YouTube and see the video. But I didn't want our podcast listeners to miss out on what was a fascinating discussion about the Battle of Passchendaele. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Please do go to the YouTube channel to watch the video version. As always, if you're enjoying this and want bonus content and exclusive access and live events, consider subscribing. There's a link in the show notes. But in the meantime, I will see you next week with our next episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me. It's Matt McLaughlin here, and we're live. I haven't done one of these for quite a while. Uh, A lot of people have been asking me, when are we going to go back and do another live presentation for some reason? They seem to be quite popular. So I've decided to do another one, which is great. So thank you for joining me. I have no idea how many people will actually join us. It could be two. It could be 200. We've got 27 at the moment. That's a good start. Um, Thanks for joining me. I really enjoy doing these. It's a great chance to talk about some significant chapters of history and to do it in a fairly relaxed fashion. Um, I should say at the outset I'm using some new software for this. Normally when I do a live, I just stick up a mobile phone And just talk into it. I'm using some new software for the first time this evening, which can enable me to do lots of things. I've got screens and paper and all sorts of stuff around me. Uh, But this is a new experience. We're in it together. It's all part of the adventure. So I could the screen could go blank. I could disappear and then come back. The sound could cut out. Who knows? But we're all in it together. So thank you for joining me. Um, Please leave comments. Say hello. If you are watching this right now, please absolutely post comments. We've already had a couple of people... Posting some comments and getting to use the technology for the first time. Thanks, Dave. Looking forward to this one. The Time Traveller is also looking forward to this as well. So I'm looking forward to it as well um, because I wanted to come live and talk about some battles that are very important to me. And the one that's probably right at the top of that list is, is Passchendaele. And so it's a, it's a great chance to speak to people who um, who also share that passion. But please, let's make it a two way conversation. I don't just want to talk. So um, feel free to chat as well. So oh, we've got viewers from Belgium. Hello, Lean from Belgium. And Gordon, looking forward to my tour with you this year on the Western Front. Well, we're looking forward to hosting you, Gordon, and walking the ground is what makes this so significant and. I think Passchendaele will want to be one of the highlights of that experience for you because it's just such a, um, it's such a, an important battlefield. So that's what we're going to do. Over the next half hour, up to an hour tonight, we're going to talk about the Battle of Passchendaele. We're going to do an overview of the history of the battle. We're going to talk about why the Battle of Passchendaele occurred, what it was like for the men that were there, importantly. Um, and then I thought at the end we could do a, a what you can see today because that is the key, walking the ground, is the thing that I love doing more than anything else. So um, that's the plan. Um, as I said, bit of housekeeping. Please do leave comments. Um, exits are located nearest to wherever you are. Toilets are in your own home, so please use those if you have to. Um, it's going to be uh, a good night. It's, it's it's an important topic. I'm not taking it too lightly. We are going to talk about a pretty horrific chapter of history, but it's great to do it with people who share that passion as well. So, um One thing I should say is if you're enjoying the videos that we are doing, the podcasts we've got a lot of our podcast listeners who communicate with me very regularly, and I really appreciate that. Uh, We do now have a subscription model available as well for lots of extra bonus content. So whether it's videos uh, or podcasts, we do have a subscription model where you can get lots of extra content, early access to all the episodes and live events like this one, but exclusively for subscribers. Uh, So there will be a link to that, but it's patreon.com slash mm history for Matt McLaughlin history. So please go and sign up. And also, at the end of the day, come and join us on a Battlefield tour. Uh, We love getting out there and walking the ground, and I'm sure lots of people watching here, as we've seen in the comments, a lot of people are already planning to do tours with us. um, And it's going to be a busy year of walking the ground, seeing some wonderful historic sites. And the Battle of Passchendaele is key uh, for anyone going to the Western Front. So, Veronica, lovely to see you. Veronica's done several tours with us, and I'm going to see her again on the Signature Tour in September, the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. Steve Douglas. Okay, anyone who's been to the town of Ypres, or Ypres, as it's known to local people, will know Steve and his excellent bookshop near the Menon Gate. And Steve also featured in our documentary about walking uh, the Battle of Epe. So check that one out as well. You'll recognise Steve and uh, the British Grenadier Bookshop. And Robert is doing a four day tour in April. That's our Explorer tour. Uh, some very one of our most popular tours. Uh, so thank you to everyone who's joining us on a tour. It'll be a wonderful experience. Um, also, I should say, if you're watching this later, we are going to record this. It will be up on YouTube uh, and possibly even as a podcast. We haven't made our mind up about that yet, but uh, it'll be up on YouTube. So if you are watching this later in time, thank you very much for watching. And if you want to leave some comments, please do in the comment section and I'll get to those as well. Um, well, let's begin, shall we? We've got several things we're going to do. I might even do a little bit of a giveaway later on, depending on how we're going. Um, let's begin, shall we? We're going to talk about the Battle of Dale Now, is a really interesting one, I think, because it's so well-known. It's one of the most famous battles of the First World War. It's infamous for the, the huge casualties, and we're not going to shy away from that in this discussion. It was a horrific battle. It was known as the Battle of the Mud because of the, the weather and the, the battlefield turning into a quagmire. So we will get to that explanation as to why. But some of the things about Passchendaele I always think are a little bit misunderstood. Um, and so Passchendaele was part of a huge allied effort called the Third Battle of Ypres, the town of Ypres in Belgium. And the Third Battle of Ypres comprised several stages, and the first several stages were actually quite successful. It was only Passchendaele right at the end that went really wrong, and and because of the disaster that was Passchendaele, the whole battle, the whole Third Battle of Ypres is often referred to as the Battle of Passchendaele, but that's that's incorrect. Passchendaele was just the last step in numerous steps during the Third Battle of Ypres. It was a technique called bite and hold rather than attacking on a broad front like we'd seen on the Somme. We were going to attack on shorter fronts and try to penetrate deep into German territory and then hang on against German counter So, well, let's. why don't we do this? I'll do, I'll do my first bit of technology. Let's. I'm going to share a screen. There we go. This is just Google Maps. Um, we're going to... I can show you on this map exactly uh, the area we're talking about. So this is Europe. So over here is the UK, as you can see. And then I'm going to get rid of myself here so that we can see this more clearly. And then uh, so we have Paris here. We have Brussels up here. So this is the area of the Western Front, this area from Paris up to Amiens, uh, that area all the way stretching up in through here into this part of Belgium. This is what we call the, at least the British and the Australian sector of the Western Front. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about visiting the Western Front. And this is where you go on a tour to visit all these key sites. In this area, Armion and this area in the middle of the map, this is the Somme fighting. And this is where, this is where the Battle of the Somme had been fought in this area. Um, the Battle of the Somme, obviously horrific uh, during the, uh, in 1916, and that was why British attention in particular turned further northward to Ypres. And here is the town of Ypres up here, up in Belgium. So we've crossed the Belgian border. Why Ypres? Well, it's, it's close to the coast, which, uh, which was always handy, the, the idea that troops could be landed on the coast or perhaps they could get behind the Germans uh, on the coast and, and outflank them. Um, it also was historically a very important area. The reason that the, the reason the British were even fighting in the First World War was because the Germans had invaded neutral Belgium. Uh, and so it was always a, a, a point of honour for the British to to hold on to Ypres and to try and liberate Belgium from the Germans. But also historically, this is where Britain had always fought its battles. This is a very um, significant spot for the British to fight uh, in battles throughout, throughout time. Um, Waterloo is not far down the road from a century earlier, and even going back to medieval times, the British had often fought uh, in Flanders. And so this is the area that we're, that we're talking about. And if we want to talk specifically about the Battle of Passchendaele, or the third Battle of Ypres, I'm going to zoom in even further. The thing that strikes you about this is how tiny these areas are. I mean, this is a, a very tiny area. This is the town of Ypres here on the left. And up in the right, if you can see that there, this is the town of Passchendaele, today spelled Passendale. This whole area from Ypres to Passchendaele, that tiny area, this is the area of the third Battle of Ypres. Uh, it's a tiny area. As I said, it's, it's, it's ludicrous to, to think how many people were killed in such a small area. We're talking a million men, a million casualties in this tiny area of Belgium, and it's what, make, it's what makes it such a compelling place to visit today because you can stay in the beautiful town of Ypres and then head out into the battlefields, and they're only minutes down the road. So the Third Battle of Ypres, the idea is they were going to push forward and basically head in this direction towards the village of Passchendaele. So there, there are a series of ridges that curve around the town of Ypres and to the south is a ridge called uh, the Messine Ridge. Uh, and then curving around to the east of as is, is the Passchendaele, the Broodseed Ridge, uh, famous, famous names in battlefield history. And so the plan was for the British to push forward towards the, the, the village of Passchendaele and to capture this ground. So there are several stages, and we're going to go through those. Before we do that, why don't I show you, I'll bring up now a battle map to give you an indication of exactly what we're talking about. So here is a battle map showing the battlefield around the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, And so we can see the town of Ypres there uh, on the left. And then these red lines, the solid red line indicates where the British were at the start of the Third Battle of Ypres. And then you can see these successive lines going out in this bite and hold strategy. So the Battle of Road, the Battle of Polygon Wood, heading out, again, names that would be very famous to people who know the history of this, and then the final line on this map to the right shows the eventual line that the British would reach uh, at Passchendaele um, over a course of a course of much fighting. So we should also remember, like, so many things to do with the First World War. This was a collective effort. This was a collaborative effort. We, we as Australians tend to just focus on the Australian efforts, and they, they were really, really important. 1917 was the year that cost Australians more casualties than any other year of the war. In fact, any other year in our military history. Uh, about 30,000 Australians, I think something like 38,000, were killed or wounded in the in the battles in in 1917. So we're talking in this area and also down in Bullecourt in France. So we tend to focus very strongly as Australians on the Australian operation, but I would implore you not to forget about our colleagues on both sides of us. This was an allied effort. The New Zealanders fought alongside us at Passchendaele and Brunseed Ridge. The uh, Canadians played a huge role in the final capture of Passchendaele. Um, and, of course, let's not forget the British. This is a ver- Looking at this map, you can see it's a very wide map and it's British. It's, even though the Australians and the New Zealanders are occupying part of the middle, there's British troops on both sides. So let's not forget about the contribution of the British, which is um, really important and, and uh, is, is something that we occasionally overlook uh, in the ANZAC nations. So that's the Third Battle of Ypres. So why don't we talk about the battles that led to the Battle of Passchendaele because we can't look at Passchendaele out of context. And so let's talk about the battles that led to the Battle of Passchendaele. So the first one of these was that ridge that I talked about south of the town, the Battle of Messine. The Battle of Messine started on the 7th of June uh, 1917 and it was a huge success. The, the Battle of Messine took place... In very fine weather, the it was it was um, the 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 key feature of that battle was the detonation of nineteen huge mines beneath the German lines, which obliterated large sections sections of German trench, and enabled the the, the Australians, the, the the New Zealanders, and the Brits to to cross the German lines and capture that high ridge. And there's an example you can see the high ridge in the background. These are Australian troops advancing at Messines in June 1917, and it was a huge success. The Battle of Messines. Uh, it was over within a couple of days. They'd captured the German positions. They'd put them, pushed them off the ridges, um, and it was a huge success. And so Messine, up till that point was considered the greatest success of the war. Uh, and so we shouldn't forget that even though Passchendaele would eventually be a huge disaster, there were some pretty good victories in the lead up to that battle. Um, thank you for all the comments we've got here uh, early in Ypres, the tour in April. Um, people watching from Vietnam. Um, so thank you very much for these uh, for these messages. Hello, Wayne from Adelaide. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. And then thank you. So um, time travellers said bloody April. They called it in 1917. That's true. The, also, the air war in 1917 was horrific as well. So the Battle of Messines, a great success, the start of the Third Battle of Ypres. It's not generally considered to be part of the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, but it's worth mentioning because it set up the attacks on the on the ridges to the east of Ypres that we described in the other map. So that was the Battle of Messines. I've included it here because I think you can't talk about what happened in the Third Battle of Ypres without also mentioning Messines. Let's move on. Now, the, the battles that really signified that that began the Third Battle of Ypres. Now, I'm doing this from an Australian perspective. The British troops started attacking earlier and also achieved great success, I'm an Australian historian, so I'm doing this from an Australian perspective, but once again, don't forget the contribution of British and, and other troops as well. So I wanted to show you these blokes from the Battle of the Menin Road. So the Menon Road was the first phase of pushing the line out and capturing ground uh, in the during the Third Battle of Epen. These three blokes are the Seabrook brothers, and it's a story that many of you will have heard, but if you haven't, you really should know about it. So this is, this is George and Theo sitting in the front and their brother William in the back, their younger brother. Um, these are the Seabrook brothers from Sydney, uh, they all joined together. They all went off to fight. And on the on the 20th of September, 1917, during the Battle of Menon Road, George and Theo were advancing together. They were both privates. William was an officer. He was a lieutenant. Uh, they were advancing. George and Theo were advancing when a shell landed and exploded and killed them both, The single shell, and their bodies were never recovered. Um, and uh, so they're now recorded on the Menon Gate in Ypres alongside 6,000 Australians who are missing from the fighting in the Ypres salient. What they didn't know was that their younger brother, William, had been wounded the same day, uh, and William sadly died the next day. So the three Seabrook brothers, George, Theo and William, were all killed within 24 hours of each other. Um, William does have a grave. He's buried at Lysenhoke Cemetery uh, behind the lines near the town of Poparinga. So I think when we talk about the Battle of Menon Road, again, a huge success. The thing I do want to say about these battles is the really significant The really significant part of these battles was the role of artillery, and this is something that the Allies had worked out very effectively by now, the idea of the creeping barrage, a barrage that would would burst ahead of the troops, just a short distance ahead of the troops, and protect them from the enemy, and they would advance behind this creeping barrage. And I saw a quote from Charles Bean, the official historian, who said, effectively, it was the artillery that won the ground. The infantry merely occupied it after the artillery had done its work. That's a slight exaggeration, but it does illustrate the point. And, and it was at Menon Road that Bean also said that the the barrage roared ahead like a Gippsland bushfire was how he described it. And I think that's really important because it's going to change by the time we get to Passchendaele. And the thing that will change is the weather. Uh, and so we're going to um, discuss the weather and the significance it played in the battle. And weather is crucial on battlefields uh, throughout time and across the world. Uh, and there's a perfectly good example of it here. So just remember that when we talk about what happened at Passchendaele is the, the importance of artillery and how the lack of it uh, would change the dynamic of the battlefield um, by the time that Passchendaele rolled around. So a couple more comments through here. I did the tour with Pete Smith. Fantastic. Got to read the ode at the Menon Gate. Wow, that's a really wonderful experience. Um, Pete Smith is our number one guy, uh, a good mate of mine. I'm looking forward to seeing him when I head over later in the year over to the battlefields um so that was the battle of Menon road moving forward to the next battle in the third battle of iep polygon wood a, a fantastic destination to visit on the battlefields uh, there's the beautiful 5th australian division memorial there and just a great site a really important site for australians a really important site for new zealanders as well who occupied the ground a little bit later on during the fighting but uh, polygon wood this is this is a wonderful painting an official painting which demonstrates pretty clearly what was going on during the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, This is quite different to what we would uh, imagine a year earlier in the Somme, where there were very strong fixed lines of trenches and fighting at Pozier and Tietval and uh, and, and these famous areas, the Sunken Lane near Beaumont-Hamel. This fighting was about capturing trenches, which had been established for a couple of years by that stage. The fighting in the Ypres salient was very different. Because the landscape was very flat, the battlefield was often flooded, uh, there was not an opportunity to build solid trench lines. The Germans had changed their strategy in, as well and were now relying on what they called defence in depth, where instead of fixed lines of trenches, they had mostly pillboxes or block houses, basically concrete protective uh, structures that they would fight from. And they would either fight, this one depicted in this, uh, in this image has loopholes in it where machine guns could fire out from within the pillbox. And oh my God, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be fighting within one of those pillboxes. Uh, as a machine gun crew with artillery exploding all around you. Um, But many of them didn't have loopholes. You can still see them today, a lot of them, because obviously they're very difficult to remove. They're such solid structures. They're still there a century later. I'm a huge pillbox nerd. Anyone that's done a tour with me will know I love finding pillboxes uh, because they were only built in areas where there was lots of fighting. So it's such a tangible link with with the combat on the Western Front. And you see lots of them still standing in the fields. Um, most of them didn't have loopholes. They were simply a concrete shelter that people could, could the machine gunners would shelter in until the barrage had passed. And there's a very famous one, and this is probably the one that's depicted here in, uh, called uh, Scott Post in the middle of Polygon Wood that we often visit on our tours. So the nature of this fighting is just horrific. Imagine uh, Australian Lewis gunners firing on the pillbox, rifle grenades firing on the pillbox, and then basically you just had to outflank it. As you can see, the blokes on the right-hand side and on the left just trying to get behind it to try and uh, cut off the pillbox and capture or kill the occupants. So just a horrific type of fighting that, that lots of the men talked about. So the Battle of Polygon Wood on the 26th of September, also a great success. The other thing I should say is these battles were successes, but the, the thing about the First World War is even the successes were costly. So each of these battles were costing the Australians about four or 5,000 men for each step. And, and going back to our map that we saw before, we're talking tiny areas here, the area that they're advancing. So uh, Polygon Wood is here. So we're talking basically just this area. Polygon Wood to Zonnebeck is, the, is effectively the area that was captured uh, during the Battle of Polygon Wood. 5,000 casualties to do that. Um, so the, the the nature of casualties, even in the successes during the First World War, um, really quite horrific. Um, True Blue Conversations, Adam Bloom. Hello, Adam. If you haven't checked out Adam's podcast, True Blue Conversations, you absolutely should. Um, he interviews some fantastic veterans and first responders. It's really great to see. Um, very true. Adam Scott's post is a very moving spot to stand and reflect on the battle. It's it's always great to find those uh, those tangible connections with with the fighting. I love I love doing that. So so Scott Post is a great place to do that. So carrying on our history, the Third Battle of Ypres, the next stage of the battle was the Battle of Seed Ridge. And this is a real photo here which shows you, you can see the pillbox in the background, the tangle of barbed wire that, uh, that blocked off, the, that protected the pillboxes, the smashed landscape and the duckboards, the famous duckboards, these wooden tracks that were built to enable people to cross this broken ground. Up until this point, so Broodseed Ridge, the 4th of October, the weather had been excellent. The, uh, the autumn weather had held very well. The, the British were very lucky that the weather had held, when I say British, I mean British and Australians and New Zealanders, the weather had held, the advance had been very effective, the artillery was able to operate. And what we should remember is as we advance each step during the battle, we've got to, before we launch the next step, we've got to be able to re, uh, reposition uh, for the next stage of the battle. And so that involves bringing up fresh troops, bringing up supplies, digging defensive positions, fighting off German counterattacks but really importantly, bringing up artillery for the next stage of the advance. So the artillery has a limited range, and so each stage of the advance artillery has to be brought up. So the the battles are about a week apart loosely to enable the artillery to be brought up, fresh troops to be brought into the line, reinforcements, supplies, uh, the dead to be taken away, um, new positions to be dug. And when I say Australians, British, Canadians, New Zealanders, it wasn't the same troops fighting uh, fighting battle after battle, a battalion or a division would fight and then be cycled out of the line and the next one would come in. So this is the Battle of Brood Ridge. So up to this point, very successful. And when you go to the Western Front, when you visit the Ypres Salient, you can visit these places and see where this success was achieved and walk the ground and you can drive across this ground in about 10 minutes. It's not very much land, but this was a key of great success during the Third Battle of Ypres, but something really important changed on the 4th of October, the weather it began to rain on the fourth of October. the The guns were still cooling from the from the action, and it began to rain. Um, and it didn't stop. It it started as a light autumn sprinkle. It then became very heavy, and within a few days, it was torrential. And the next phase of the battle was the Battle of Passchendaele, uh, which was scheduled for the 9th of October. Uh, so five days later, and there was a big discussion about whether the battle should be called off because with the with the rain just persisting for the entire week. The battlefield turned to a quagmire. It was very difficult to get reinforcements up to the line. I read an account that where a relieving battalion was supposed to come up to the line and it was supposed to take them 90 minutes. It took them 11 hours to fight their way through thigh-deep mud. And imagine the state of the men through this. You can see it in this photo. Imagine the state of the men by, by the time they got to the front line. They'd be absolutely exhausted. But most importantly, artillery could not be brought up to support the men. So only a small fraction of the guns that needed to be brought up um, were available to support the Battle of Passchendaele. And in addition, um, the shells wouldn't explode in the mud In pre- because it had been dry in the previous stages of the battle. The shells had been fired, they'd explode, they'd throw up dust and smoke and create this barrier that, that the Germans couldn't see through as the men advanced. Once it started to rain, the shells would basically plop down in the mud. A huge proportion of them didn't explode at all and anyone that's been to the Western Front will know that because we still find them all the time, these unexploded shells. Um, But even when they did explode, instead of throwing up a wall of dust and smoke, it'd just be a bit of a plop and a a blast. And so the artillery was completely ineffective in these later stages, and that was going to be disastrous for the Battle of Passchendaele. The decision to advance on Passchendaele is a controversial one. Um, I do see the point of the British commanders that they were trying to break through the German lines. They were trying to – they were already – they'd already forced the Germans back a very long way, and they wanted to finish them off. Um, but at the same time, with the changed conditions and the weather, it was a bold call. Let me just put it that way. It's been a highly controversial decision. Whether you like or loathe Douglas Haig, the commander of the British, this is one of the examples that is given as uh, perhaps he wasn't doing as good a job as he should have. I'm not going to buy into that too much. I, I'm actually a fan of Haig. I think he did a pretty good job for the most part. But it was a controversial decision to keep attacking and to to push on at the Battle of Passchendaele. And sadly, the um, the the men that would pay for that with the blokes in the front line uh, and the horror of Passchendaele. Um, so, let's talk about Passchendaele itself. So, I've got just a slideshow here to talk about specifically to give some of the demonstration of the horror of the Battle of Passchendaele. I mean, just just look at this battlefield. This is no place to fight a war. And it's quite extraordinary where you go there today. The, the, the Tynecott Cemetery sits right in the middle of the Passchendaele battlefield. And so when you visit Tynecott, the world's largest Commonwealth cemetery, one of the most visited sites on the battlefields, you can see in front of you, you can see where the troops advanced successfully on October 4 during the Battle of Broodseed Ridge. And then behind you is the killing fields of Passchendaele. And it looks nothing like this today. We're going to go, later on in the presentation, we'll talk about what it looks like today. It looks nothing like this. Uh, and it's extraordinary. You You can't make the leap of imagination to to what was going on at Passchendaele, to men drowning in the mud, to artillery guns stuck. I mean, look at the, the photo top right there, showing them trying to move the gun through the mud. You know, they've got... St- trying to prize it with bits of wood. It's buried up to the axles. And in that situation, it, you just weren't going to be able to get enough guns up. And therefore, when the infantry went in, they were met with horrendous fire, uh, machine gun fire, artillery fire from the Germans and and, and were beaten back with severe losses. The The... There's not actually too much to talk about in terms of the actual what happened in the action of the Battle of Passchendaele. It's basically men slogging forward in horrendous conditions that you can see here and getting mowed down by machine gun fire. So the Germans were suffering casualties as well. There were artillery guns firing. The Australians, the British, the New Zealanders did capture German strong points and overwhelm and kill the crews. This was going on. A couple of Victoria Crosses were awarded to Australians for um, for overcoming German machine gun positions, so the Germans were suffering as well, um, but not anywhere near the extent that the British and and, and and the Allies were in their advance through the mud at Passchendaele. So this this is the horror of the of the Battle of Passchendaele, um, just horrendous stories. And here's another photo and a and a quote which I'll read now to describe. This is an Australian, what he what he went through. Uh, So his quote is, Belgian mud is incomprehensible to anyone who has not experienced it. If a shell has burst recently, it churns the ground up so that it is bottomless, and horses, carts, and even men have been known to disappear in it. On several occasions, we've had to dig people out. One man was up to his shoulders for four hours, and another his waist for one that I personally came across. Just imagine what it was like. Look at these poor buggers here. These are stretcher bearers, and there's one, two, three one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stretcher bearers trying to carry out one stretcher case. Just imagine the strain that puts on an army. Trying to evacuate one wounded man took seven men and look at this poor bugger up to his up to his thighs in mud. Just absolutely horrific. Um, th- there's no words to describe what was going on at Passchendaele during this fighting. And, of course, if you're in the front line and trying to advance through these conditions, there was mach- the machine gun fire was cutting you down from these pillboxes that were not being effectively taken out by artillery. We can't describe the horror of the attack on Passchendaele, and it broke down. There were there were actually two, two stages of the attack. On the 9th of October, a, a, a smaller attack went in, which did okay but struggled a bit, and then on the 12th of October in this sea of mud, uh, the British, the New Zealanders and the Australians went in uh, and were absolutely mown down. It was really quite horrific. And the only cover on the battlefield was a narrow valley called the Rava Beak, and because it was the only, really the only shelter, one of the only places that provided shelter, men tended to gather there, and off, many of them died there. Wounded men would crawl into that muddy ditch, and many of them died there. Just the horror of the Battle of Passchendaele is indescribable. To give you an indication of just the rate of firepower that was going on during the whole Third Battle of Beak, this is the village of Passchendaele um before and after the battle and so this is really quite extraordinary i the good thing what we're doing here is this is what i do on the ground during a tour is i i, I present these things to people on the ground and so you can see the roads there around the, the village of passiondale so this is in the space of only a couple of weeks to show just how heavy that preliminary bombardment was it, it fell down during the actual battle on the 9th and 12th of october but in the lead up just to show how the town had been obliterated i mean that Photo on the left is already a very obliterated village. There's no buildings left standing, really just the shells of, of villages, of, of houses in the village. But obviously, you can see on the right, even those cease to exist anymore. The only landmark you can see there is the church in the middle. And an interesting story was that a group of Australians uh, who were involved in the attack basically followed their orders to the letter and charged straight for the church in Passchendaele, which was the main objective. Um, far outpaced the rest of the Australians that were advancing and found themselves on their own in the village of Passchendaele, um, completely surrounded by Germans, but not having been spotted by the Germans at that stage. And they were the only Australians to actually enter Passchendaele village during the fighting. They didn't stay long. They scarpered back to the Australian lines and and safety. They were the only Australians to reach the village of Passchendaele during the battle. The New Zealanders on the left suffered very terribly as well. And in the end, the Canadians came over. They relieved the Australians and New Zealanders, and the Canadians pushed forward uh, and fought for another month around Passchendaele and eventually succeeded in capturing the village. But for what purpose? It was, it was, as you can see from these images, it was not a village by the time that the Canadians took it. It was just simply a, a mark on the ground. Um, it did have high ground, however, and so it gave the Allies a view over the, over the battlefields and enabled them to, to plan future advances. Um, but it also denied the Germans the view over the town of Epe that, uh, that they had had for a very long time since uh, very early in the war. So that's a fairly poor price, though, a fairly, a fairly poor prize for the loss of, of so many men. Um, let's talk about the numbers. I mean, we've got more slides here just showing you again the horror. This is really important. This is a photo that the official historian Frank Hurley took of Australians sheltering um in the uh the railway embankment which ran right across the heart of the battlefield and this is on early on the morning of october 12 these men have attacked and then been repulsed in the attack and just just look at the state of them there's a body here which is quite a mutilated german body he was probably killed in the opening barrage but this australian here on the left uh looks like he's died as well so um Frank Hurley, when he took this photo, said it was they were, so, they were so shaken up that it was hard to tell the living from the dead in the, in, when he took this photo. And this is a spot we can go to on the battlefields, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. This
1: is one of the key spots on the Passchendaele battlefield. Um. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: So we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about losses because this is really puts it into context. So this is just for the Battle of Passchendaele, just this last stage on October 9 and October 12. Um, the Australians, so without any gains here, the Australians lost 4,200 men in, in that day. So on, a, on the on the 9th of October and then again fighting on the 12th of October, 4,200 New Zealand, fighting on the 12th of October, lost 2,700 men. It's the worst day in New Zealand military history. More men were killed or wounded on that day than on any other day in history, which is just extraordinary. Let's not forget the British during during Passchendaele. The British lost 13,000. So the British lost more than twice as many as the Australians and New Zealanders combined, fighting alongside us. The, p- the poor old Brits don't quite get the attention uh, that they potentially deserve. Um, the Canadians who then took over and then captured the village lost 16,000 men between when they came into the line in the middle of October and the 5th of November when they captured the village. 16,000 men were killed, just absolutely extraordinary. It's a really important site for Canada. We'll see that later on when we talk about walking the ground. Um, The Canadians also received nine Victoria Crosses, which is the most ever awarded in a single action to Canadians, even more than they won at Vimy Ridge, which is what they consider their Gallipoli. Um, the Germans, out of all this, lost only 12,000, so the, the balance of casualties was very much weighted towards the Allies. It just shows what a horrific uh, experience it was. Overall, the entire Third Battle of Ypres, so British and Allied forces, lost 310,000 men, killed or wounded, in the uh, in the battle, and the Germans lost two hundred and seventy thousand. So we're we're up around six hundred thousand men during the Third Battle of Ypres were killed or wounded, in the case of the Germans, captured as well. Uh, they the Germans suffered a lot of men taken prisoner, particularly in the earlier stages of the Third Battle of Ypres. So again, what I what I always say when you visit the battlefields is is what you can't get your head around is the scale, and those numbers just sum it up: three hundred and ten thousand Allied soldiers killed or wounded, two hundred and seventy thousand Germans. So just horrific, for land that we can now drive across in six or seven minutes. And we say it's high ground, so that's important. It's not very high ground. It provides a somewhat of a view, but it's not a, it's not a particularly significant uh, piece of ground that was captured for the cost of nearly 600,000 men. So those horrific figures Um Really put the battle into perspective. Uh, the issue for the Allies was they suffered so many losses at uh, during the Third Battle of Ypres that they were very under strength going into the start of 1918. Uh, so not a lot of fighting occurred during the winter, but then it all kicked off again at the start of 1918. And this is when Germany launched its huge spring offensive, where it broke through in several places. And and um, if in simplistic terms, when Germany nearly won the war in March and April uh, 1918, um, but some pretty heroic resistance by let's not forget the British, some outstanding resistance from British units, but also the Australians and the New Zealanders who were brought into line and the Canadians as well, held up the Germans in many places. So the the, the huge losses in the Third Battle of Ypres really enabled the Germans to launch their big counterattack. The Germans also had been very heavily reinforced. That's a whole other story. Um, But we were too weak after the losses of Third Ypres to to adequately defend against the, the Spring Offensive. So... That's a that's just an indication of the losses that went on during the Battle of Passchendaele. To demonstrate that in uh, a pretty horrific detail, again, this is a map. This is a map of the Somme region, but it it, it still makes the point fairly clearly that I want to talk about. So this um, this is uh, the, these are um, basically this is after the war. Graves units would go into the battlefield and they would write down bodies that were uncovered in graves in various parts of the battlefield. And they would break the battlefield down into 100 by 100 yard squares. That's what these are. And they would write a figure that indicates graves and bodies that were not in cemeteries. So if there was an organized cemetery, these figures do not include the bodies in organized cemeteries. So if we have a look, some of these ones, um, you know, in square H&I, for example, they found five bodies in one 100 by 100 yard square. They found eight. They found two. 14 in one account. But then as we head down sort of into the bottom left corner, that, uh, that sort of southwest corner, which was the key fighting in 1918, the numbers start to go up, 26, 86, 55 I can see there, 95. But then if you scan those squares, you start to get some horrific ones, 372, um, 172, 395. And then when we, by the time we get down to the bottom left in the thick of the SOM fighting, 702. Um, 749, and one of these squares is 800 and something, 879. 8, see that, 29 or 79, but over 800 bodies in a 100-yard by 100-yard square after the war. Um, this just shows the the extent of, of what they found, and, uh, I mean, this is a pretty grisly indication. It, it, it really puts it in perspective of of the horror of the battlefields, and Ypres was very much the same. The Battle of Passchendaele, when you go to to Passchendaele now, the cemeteries there, there's, only, there's not many cemeteries, but the ones that are there are huge um, and uh, contain mostly graves brought in from the battlefield after the war, men that had either just been buried by their mates or just, just lay out there and were still laying out there at the end of the war. Um, just horrific. And on that note, before we move on, um, some comments. Um, what do we think about using Mark IV tanks during the Battle of Passchendaele? Some tanks were used uh, during the fighting of Third Epe, but um, it was not ground that was well suited to tank fighting. The, the broken ground, tanks of the time needed pretty smooth and good conditions. Mud was a huge, um, it was a huge killer of tanks, and that's what we found during the Third Battle of Epe. Um, Veronica says. Um, it's exactly right. The leap of imagination required to know what that battlefield was like is impossible for most of us to make. You're absolutely right, Veronica. I know that, I mean, you stood there with me. And we've looked out over this battlefield. I think it's a good thing that we can't imagine it. What you need is a taste of what the battlefield was like. You need some understanding of what these men went through, but there's no way we want to have a, a, an exquisite vision of what they had to put up with. Um, my, uh, so, Wayne... Wayne Champion says, my relative Percy Champion was killed there October 6th, 1917. Uh, so in between uh, the two battles we just described, Broodseed Ridge and, um, and Passchenda rebuilding in Dalhallow, ADS Cemetery in Ypres, lucky enough to visit three times. Well done, Wayne. That's great. It's always It always adds a, a very special element when you can visit the grave of a relative. I, I actually discovered after getting interested in the First World War that I have a couple of relatives that are buried over there and it's very special to go and stand um, by that grave. Uh, Craig Roach. This is Roachie, one of our leading Gallipoli guides. If you go to Gallipoli, you'll go with Craig Roach. Absolute legend. Uh, So, hello, Roachie. Thanks for tuning in. These two photos of Passchendaele really bring it home. Could you imagine witnessing such barrages, let alone being under such things? I agree. Just horrific. We can't imagine it for ourselves, but that's why it's important we go over there and at least try to get an understanding of of what these men went through. Um, Just horrific, obviously. A, A really horrific tale that I've now recounted to you. But to somewhat lighten the mood, um, I wanted to share with you an interesting anecdote. And I share this anecdote. Anyone who's been on the tour with me will, will understand this because we do play up the Aussie thing a little bit, I must say. The Larick and Aussies, we do we do play this up a little bit, but there are good examples. It is based on somewhat on fact, and there are some good examples of this. So I always tell this story when I'm standing in the middle of the, the Passchendaele battlefield. I'll just read this out. During 3rd, 3rd EAP, Lieutenant P. King of the 2nd 5th Battalion East Lancashire Regiment so this is a British officer, was stuck with a small leftover of his company in the mud near Polkapel. That's in the area we're talking about. The men were exhausted, had been under constant fire for two days and desperate for relief, but no one seemed even to know that they were there. Lieutenant King already began to wonder whether his company had been secretly chosen to be a suicide force. And here's what he said about what happened next, lying out in in the mud, in this shell hole, desperate for relief. This is what King said. Suddenly, to my great surprise, I heard voices behind me, And I looked back, and there were three very tall figures, and one was actually smoking. I could hardly speak for astonishment. I said, who the hell are you? And put that cigarette out. You'll draw fire. He just looked back at me. Well, come to that. Who are you? I said, I'm Lieutenant King of the 2nd, 5th East Lancashire Regiment, at which he said, well, we're the Aussies, chum, and we've come to relieve you. And they jumped down into the shell hole. Well, naturally, we were delighted. But of course, there are certain formalities you've always got to carry out when you hand over. And I was a bit worried about that. So I explained, there are no trenches to hand over, no rations, no ammunition, but I have got a map. Do you need any map references? He said, never mind about that, chum, just fuck off. They didn't seem to be a bit bothered. The last I saw of them, they were squatting down, rifles over their shoulders, and they were smoking, all three of them, just didn't care. Um excuse the salty language, um, I always like to tell that when we're standing on the Passchendaele battlefield. As, as I said, we overplay the uh, the, the Aussie larrikin a little bit, but I do love that quote from a British officer. I think that uh, that uh, it's a great yarn, um, which sums up at least the attitude of some of the Australians. So I do like to share that one. Um, oh, that's my last slide. I love that photo, too, of the Australians. It's been colorized. Whoever colourised that, you did a brilliant job. What a great photo of the Aussies. Just, it's, it's, I think that's actually on the Somme. I don't think that's in Ypres. Um And it's, it's part of the fifth, it's one of the fifth division battalions. But just look at, I just, I just love the look of them in their slouch hats. Um, relaxed pose. I think uh, every time I've ever posted that photo, it's, uh, it's been very well appreciated by Australians. Just such a, such a great shot of Aussies on the battlefield. And that's why we visit the battlefields, um, to see places like this, to stand in their footsteps, to remember the Anzacs. Um, how many people have we currently got watching Let me have a look. We've got 65 people. I think 65 people is enough for it. I I really want to do this because I think this is going to be a bit of fun. Sorry to use the word fun when we've just been talking about the horrors of the Battle of Passchendaele. But we're all here together. Let's do a giveaway because I want to try this out. There's part of this technology I can use for a giveaway, which I think will be quite interesting. So let's give away um, the book behind me. Walking with the Anzacs, my book. Not that one. That's the old. Let me grab it. This is my guide to the battlefields which includes Passchendaele. So I'll bring myself up here. So this includes the whole chapter on Walking Passchendaele. This is my guidebook to the Western Front. This has been out for a very long time. We've just done the new edition has just come out. Um, The latest edition has just come out, the fully updated edition. So let's give away a signed copy of that book. So what we're going to do here, here's how it's going to work. So grab your friends if they're in the room and not watching and get everyone who wants to participate. What we're going to do is... We are going to, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to, so we're going to do a giveaway of the book. I'm just going to set this up now. What you have to do to go into the draw is there's going to be a hashtag and you have to write a word after it. So let's go with ANZAC. Okay. So we're going to go, I'll set this up now. We're going to go with the word ANZAC, A-N-Z-A-C. Okay. So to enter the
1: draw.
0: Okay. Here we go. To enter the draw you have to type into the comments hashtag ANZAC. So go. Let's do that now. If you want to enter the draw to win a signed copy of Walking with the ANZACs, write hashtag ANZAC into the comments right now. Let's go. We'll give people a few minutes to do that. We've had five entries so far. I'll blow this up so you can see what's happening. This is going to be fun. So seven entries, nine 10. So we'll give a couple of minutes just for people to enter and then we'll do the draw. 14 entries so far, 15. Thank you so much to everyone for coming out and doing this. I didn't know if I'd only have about three people. So the fact that we've had between 50 and 70-odd people to listen in over a consistent period of time is absolutely fantastic. We'll give that a couple more minutes to go. I think if we get over 20, we'll, um, we'll do the draw. So hashtag Anzac to join in in the comments. Anyone else? Oh, 18. So so far you've got a 1 in 18 chance. Okay. We'll see. Are we going to get to 20? No, we're there on 18. Okay. Let's do the draw. Good luck, everyone. We'll see who the winner is. Let's do the draw. Oh, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the winner is Kelvin Barr. Congratulations, Kelvin. Well done. You will win a copy. You have just won yourself a copy of Walking with the Anzacs, the new edition of Walking with the Anzacs. So we will get your details. I'll make a note. So we will be in touch with you, Kelvin, get your address details and send you out a copy of that book. Congratulations. That technology actually worked. That was a good thing to do. Um to lift the mood slightly after the horrors of the, of the battle of Passchendaele. Let's carry on. I think let's, um, what I think would be good now is I, I, what I really want to do is as, as every, everyone who knows me knows, I love walking the ground. So let's, um, let's talk about that now. And what I actually have is um, there's a, I did a video um, a little while ago, a couple of years ago, um, about walking the Battle of Passchendaele. And it, it, it's me walking the ground. It's been very popular. Lots of people watch it on YouTube. You can go and find it on YouTube. It's free to watch on YouTube. Go and watch that walk in the ground. But what I did now is I made a slightly edited version of that to talk about some of those key sites that we've been discussing. And I thought what we could do... I'll just pause that. I've got the sound off. That's good. What I thought we could do is I'll talk you through it. Let's, um, let's spend the next five or six minutes going through this and talking about some of those sites that I mentioned from the Battle of Passchendaele, what they look like today and what you can see when you walk the ground because it's an extraordinary battlefield to visit and you do get a unique perspective. So, I mean, look at this to begin. The the, the cemetery of Tynecott. This was captured by Australians during the Battle of Broodseed Ridge and this is in the heart of the Passchendaele battlefield. So, these are the killing fields of Passchendaele. And nothing sums it up more than... Oh, there I am walking through the cemetery. Geez, I was on a good paddock too. <laughs> Must have been enjoying that Belgian beer. Anyway, um, this is uh, this is just look at the scale of that cemetery. This is the world's largest Commonwealth cemetery created when the bodies of men who'd been killed in the fighting in the area, of Broodseed Ridge, Passchendaele, uh, mostly, um, and the fighting around there were brought in uh, and collected together. It's called a concentration cemetery because bodies were concentrated after the war. Just an extraordinary place, and this gives us a fantastic perspective of the battlefield of Passchendaele. So this is Tynecott Cemetery, which is, was basically the start point for the, for the attack. And then beyond it, you can just see the steeple, the church steeple of Passchendaele Village. So that is the Passchendaele battlefield. These are the killing fields, if you can believe it, where so many men lost their lives. That mud that we saw, this is, these are the killing fields of, of Passchendaele. Really quite extraordinary. Um, so this is the Passchendaele battlefield, and this is what we can see today when we walk the ground. And so um, just me walking through the cemetery. One of the key features of the fighting, as I said, was the the, the pillboxes or the bunkers or the blockhouses, and um, here's a good example of one. This one's actually in the, in the cemetery that shows what it looked like at the time of, of the war, and there's, there's, there's a couple of these in the cemetery, and they're really quite extraordinary because they've still got shell damage all over them. In fact, I think that's exactly what I'm saying as I stand there, but you can see the chunks of masonry taken out of the, of, the, of the concrete by the shells landing. It's really quite extraordinary. I love tangibles on the battlefield, and when I take people to the battlefield, I want to give them tangibles. You've got to be able to touch and feel the history, and this is a fantastic way to do it. Actually standing there seeing chunks of concrete taken out of pillboxes by Allied artillery is absolutely extraordinary. So this is um, a fantastic spot to visit. When I first visited the battlefields about 25 years ago, I was blown away by this spot. Pardon the expression. Uh, just an amazing spot to visit and, and and to stand there and touch that concrete and feel that history. So an amazing spot. And as I recall, buried just in front is that chap there. I'll show his face again. This is Clarence Jeffries. He was a captain and he was uh, 34th Battalion, I think, from memory, was killed during the Battle of Passchendaele capturing a pillbox. If you go to the Anzac Memorial in Sydney, which you absolutely should in Hyde Park, there is a, a depiction there, a diorama of this attack. Where Clarence Jeffries is capturing this pillbox. He was killed during that attack. And it's actually a, a sad story. His body was missing, and his father, knowing that he'd been killed, came over after the war to try and find the body of his son and actually spent several weeks searching the battlefield and was unsuccessful, but soon afterwards a, a body was found wrapped in a ground sheet with initials on it that indicated it was it was Captain Jeffries. So Captain Jeffreys for his fantastic work was awarded the Victoria Cross. There's one of um, <laughs> my baby son is in the background is saying good night. Um, the uh, the there are a couple of Australians uh, of Victoria Cross winners buried in Tynecott Cemetery. So extraordinary place. So that's uh, so that's Tynecott. Um, I do want to bring up... It's a good point here from Craig Simpson. The photo of the dead and alive diggers with a limbless corpse always puts things into perspective. It certainly does. Just imagine what that was like. This is an important quote too from Michael Everett. Belgium has the best beer. I would heartily agree with that. There, there is nothing better than visiting the town of Ypres. and I, I describe Ypres as it's a bit like an old friend, visiting the town and um, enjoying a cold beer at the end of a long day of remembering the Anzacs is a really special thing to do. Um, so I, I love Ypres. I love Flanders and Belgium. It's a fantastic place. Um, do you have some tips for someone who's trying to become a guide in Ypres? Um, great question. Um, it's a slight diversion, but let's discuss it briefly. Um, firstly, know your stuff is the thing, know know about the history. Um, there are some courses you can do. There's the Guild of Battlefield Guides out of the UK that do an accreditation course. Um, but I think if you're in Belgium, um, you can align with a number of um, of companies that, that operate tours. And um, the, the secret is knowing your stuff. You have to know and be able to convey the, the, the history of what went on on the ground. But, I mean, good luck if you can do that job. I'm jealous if you can take on a job as a full-time battlefield guide. That's something I'd love to do. Let's carry on with our exploration of the Passchendaele battlefield. This is uh, interesting that um, the the Cross of Sacrifice in the middle of the cemetery was um, built around, you can see it here, you can see the sort of higgledy-piggledy graves built around the Cross of Sacrifice. The Cross of Sacrifice is built over another German pillbox. Um, the Higgledy Piggledy Graves here indicates where an original cemetery was, a very small cemetery. I think from memory, there was about 70 graves in this in this cemetery uh, at the time of the end of the war. So seventy seven zero, 7 um, And now there's about 12,000 graves in Tynecott Cemetery. So it just shows how many bodies were brought in from around the area. Just absolutely horrific. Another thing, this is an aside as well, but whenever I'm in Tynecott Cemetery, there's a lot of school groups that go there and you see kids clambering all over this this cross of sacrifice. And usually someone will come over and grumpily tell them to stop climbing on the memorial. It's a war memorial. Keep your hands off. And what I say to them is if you look closely at this memorial, you'll see those are steps built into the side. This was intended for people to climb on it, have a perspective across the cemetery and the battlefields. Sometimes we can, can get a little bit precious with these things so you can see the steps, and that's actually a seat at the top of the memorial. We can get a little bit precious with these things sometimes. And I think if kids make the effort to come to this cemetery, it's fantastic that they that they make the most of it and get a view across the battlefields. So. It's a German soldier killed defending the pillboxes in Time Cut Cemetery. So there's that is the Cross of Sacrifice with the steps leading up to it built over the German pillbox. And again, perspectives of graves. I'm obviously, obviously, I was doing more talking than I'm even doing now. Um, this is uh, this is the wall behind. The cemetery, which is the Tynecott Memorial to the Missing. Now, the main memorial to the Missing from the Ypres Salient uh, is in the town of of, um, of Ypres itself. It's right there, the Menin Gate. And anyone who's been there would know about the Menin Gate, and they play the Last Post under it every night. It's the most wonderful moving commemoration on the Western Front. But as they were constructing the Menin Gate and the Menin Gate that has fifty four thousand names on it, they realised they didn't have enough space for all the names of missing men. And so they actually set a cutoff of, I think it's August 1917. So it's actually before the Battle of Passchendaele. So only men killed before August 1917 are on the Men and Gate Memorial. And then they put up this memorial wall at Tynecott to record um, the, the men who were killed after um, August 1917. So these basically the men killed in the, in the Third Battle of Ypres, the battle we've been describing. Only British troops, not Australians in this instance. All the Australians killed in Belgium are on the Men and Gate and no New Zealanders are on either of those memorials. New Zealanders are recorded at their own memorials in various parts of the battlefield. This is the railway embankment that I described before where we showed the horrific photo of the Australians sheltering after being repulsed during the Battle of of uh, of Passchendaele, one of the most amazing places to visit on the battlefields. As you can see, there's the actual spot. You can stand in that spot where those poor buggers were... And just an amazing spot. Again, a tangible link with history. I love finding those little those little links. Most, most groups don't go to that spot, but I always make sure that we take people there. Um, just a fantastic spot. This is also a fantastic spot. I'm using the word fantastic. I don't mean fantastic in terms of enjoyable. I mean in terms of giving you a perspective of the history. The Canadian Memorial in the town of Passchendaele. The Canadians... I don't know what it is, do memorials better than just about anyone. They're they're always so moving and fantastically done. And this one's actually not that often visited. There's other memorials that get more often visited. Um, But um, a spectacular memorial to the Canadians who fought uh, in this area. Uh, And so many of them died, as I said. What was the number of Canadians lost? 16,000 Canadians killed or wounded. Nine Victoria Crosses. And this is where they're remembered on the outskirts of Passchendaele. That's a bird's eye view of the memorial. Thank God for drones these days. Um, this is me walking along the road, which leads past the valley I described, the Raverbeek. You can't even really see it in this. It's such a narrow, it's such a small little insignificant feature. Um, but the the valley of the Ravarbeek, which was where the wounded men gathered, you can see it there behind me where those trees are. It's just a fairly insignificant little valley. It's not what we normally think of as a, as a huge valley. This is the Ravabeak. To my chest, like me. Um, this is the ravine. This is where this is the scene of death and destruction. Where we saw those photos of men drowning in mud. This is where it all took place. You can't quite get a perspective on it today, but you have to. You have to walk the ground and understand. You can stand there and say, "I'm, um, I'm standing in this spot. You know where so much death occurred." Um, a couple of uh, questions there, Julie Canaan. Hi, boss. Julie's going to do some work with us on the battlefields. So um, great to have you, Julie, coming on the tours in the future. Um, some other questions here. Ramon asks, how many names on the wall panels? Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention. It's about 35,000 at Tynecott, so 54,000 on the and Gate, and I think it's about 35,000 uh, on the wall at Tynecott. That's a lot of missing people. Very, very briefly, not to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but the concept of missing um, doesn't necessarily mean that they're still lying out there in the fields. This can be confusing for people, particularly if they have a missing relative, is my relative is missing, they're on a memorial, so they must be out there in the field, so can I go and search for them? What we have to understand is that about half of the people who are on a memorial as missing are actually buried in a cemetery. We just don't know which man is in which grave. So the, the, the cemeteries are, if you go to somewhere like Tynecott, I think of the 11,000, nearly 12,000 burials, I think about 8,000 are unknown soldiers. So when you go to Tynecott, the vast majority of graves just say a soldier of the Great War, known unto God, or it might say an Australian soldier, or it might say a British sergeant, um, whatever little bit of information they can get. So about half of the people that are missing from the fighting in the First World War are are in graves. Uh, We just don't know which man is in which grave, if that makes sense. So if you have a relative who died in the war and is missing there's a very good chance they actually are buried in a cemetery and often if we know what action they were killed in if, particularly if it was a small action you can make a pretty good guess as to which cemetery they're probably lying in you just can't identify which specific grave so i hope that makes sense so here's carrying on this is a another very moving canadian memorial so i'm going a bit deeper into this video than i thought but i just can't help it there's so many amazing sites in passiondale makes me desperate to get back over there uh this is where gas was first used during the war. This is called the uh, it's known as various names but the brooding soldier is the one I refer to most commonly. The the memorial isn't so much to commemorate gas it's to commemorate a really important Canadian action um but it also marks the spot where Canadian troops uh, and um and French uh, colonial troops actually came under the first gas attack on the western front. Gas had been used uh, slightly earlier in uh, in uh, other parts uh, I think on the Italian front it was first used, but here on the Western front, this was the first time gas was used, and what a horrific weapon! Um, there's a there's a very moving uh, there's a moving memorial um, at nearby Langemark German cemetery, which is simply just a signpost with signs pointing to various places. You know where you see quite often in tourist places. You know Sydney's in this direction, and London's in this direction, Paris over here. Well, this one points to various obscure towns and cities around the world and you look at it and you go what what?" you know it's 2300 miles to tokyo and in this direction is somewhere somewhere in iraq and it doesn't make much sense until you think about it what it's pointing out is where gas has been used in the in the world against civilians um which is really quite horrific the the subject of gas um in the first world war is just horrific what it what it did to men lifelong injuries it didn't just take them out of the battle it affected them for the rest of their lives And i'm sure many of you have relatives who um who suffered the ill effects of gas for the rest of their lives. Just a horrific weapon. Um, The reason Tokyo, incidentally, is on that memorial is because of the sarin gas attack in, I think, the 1990s. Um, Horrific. You can't begin to understand the horrors of gas in warfare. Just absolutely horrific. Um, This is actually at a museum, the Passchendaele 1917 Museum. And what they've done here is these trenches are recreated. They've dug these trenches, but they've done them in a very specific way to show how the different nationalities constructed their trenches and how different parts of the trench line would look. So you basically get a complete trench system here. It's it's really well done. So this is the German section of the trenches. And then later on, you can go into the British section. And it's great that in one spot, you can get an understanding of of, of exactly what went on and and an inkling into what the men went through. We can never get a full understanding, but you get an inkling of what the men went through. So that's a great spot to visit as well. Let me know in the comments, have you been to any of these sites? What was it like to visit these sites? Um, if you've been, send me a comment. Tell me what the what the most what was the site on the battlefield that, that touched you the most. Let us know in the comments. Um, and this, of course, Langermark German Cemetery. Now, I've gotten into a bit of trouble for my comments about Langermark lately. It must be said because there's some new history that's come out which talks about this is a cemetery that was built after the First World War. It was actually there during the war. Then it was expanded after the First World War, and then a lot of graves were collected there into a um into a, a central crypt when the Belgians closed down uh, other cemeteries. Um, but the thing about this that's been controversial is in the 1930s, the Nazis used this as a national symbol. So a lot of renovation work was done to the cemetery. And a lot of the symbolism we see there the dark crosses and various bits and pieces were was actually done as a part of a propaganda ploy effectively by the Nazis. Um, and so there's a very strong World War II connection um, with the cemetery as well, which is really quite remarkable. Um, but... When talking about that, it has created a bit of a stir lately when I talked about in this video. Um, But there's a very significant link, which I think we're about to come up with uh, in the video, which is this area here of the cemetery. Um, Here I am strolling along, but we're about to see in the footsteps of someone who obviously symbolises the horrors of the Second World War. Wait for it. Wait for it. So you won't have to go and watch the video now on... YouTube, you're seeing it all here. Standing in this spot. And a visit in 1940 by Adolf Hitler, who came here with his groups of henchmen. Hitler was touring the battlefields where he'd fought during the First World War. Again, it was part of propaganda. The Nazis, I mean, say what you like about the Nazis, but they certainly knew how to play the propaganda game. And Hitler was brought back and toured his the sites where he supposedly achieved greatness during the First World War. And he went famously went to Fromel. Uh, the Australian battlefield. I've just recently done a video on Fromel, so look that one up on YouTube as well where uh, we show we show where Hitler visited Fromel as well. But he went to Vimy Ridge, the Canadian Memorial, and a number of other sites, but he also came here to Langemark Cemetery. So we don't we obviously we don't want to glorify the Hitler and his regime, but it is an interesting link with history, the two world wars linked there together. And speaking of just interesting links with history, this is the crypt where basically after the Second World War, the Belgians, who were quite unthrilled at having been invaded three times in under a century by the Germans, um, basically closed a lot of German cemeteries and the Germans were forced to collect their graves uh, together. And so they built this crypt at Langermark German Cemetery. I think there's over 50,000 bodies now in the crypt, including a couple of British soldiers who were either... I've heard two stories about it. The two British soldiers were either prisoners who were buried in German cemeteries or in the... Collection of bodies to bring them to the crypt. They got a bit overzealous and grabbed a couple of Brits as well. So there's two British names on the memorials as well that commemorate them. And the comrade sculpture overlooking the uh the fallen comrades. So that crypt still is used when they find Germans in this area. They will still use that crypt and open it up and uh and and put bodies in there and place it in the crypt. So I believe this is the end of the video. Talking about the Battle of Passchendaele. So I just wanted to share that with you to show you what it's like today, because what I love to do is, is is link what you read in the history books to what you can see on the ground there today, and there's there's no better way to do it than to actually walk the ground. So I really enjoyed making this video. So I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Um, that's the Battle of Passchendaele. That's uh, that's a poignant end to the end to the video right there. That's the. Um, that's the Battle of Paschendaele, a, a, a horrific moment. Um, not not, not quite as horrific as we sometimes think because um, there were the successes. Let's not forget that Pashendale was part of the Third Battle of Ypres, a very large battle with lots of successes earlier on from Menon Road, Polygon Wood, Scene Ridge, but the Battle of Paschdale itself, just horrific. Um, so thank you for joining me. Uh, we've got uh, people commenting on their... Um, I'm not their, the, not favourite, but the parts that spoke to them. Greeting for the Netherlands. Hello. Um, Michael Everett says, my grandfather was gassed in World War One. Horrific. I'm sure, Michael, he sadly felt the effects of that long after the war was over. Um, so just, just reading these. Um, remembering our cousin... I our cousin John Halley Street died 29 October 1917. So after the fighting, had died down a bit. Passion Tower burial. Buried at Tynacott. Well, that's, it's actually, I mean, it's fortunate, Daryl, that, that that your relative has a grave. That's somewhere you can go and visit, which is, which is really significant. Um, any last questions before we wrap? Oh, we've been going for over an hour. Uh, I can talk. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. I, can, I do enjoy a chat. Um, we've been going for over an hour, so we should wrap it up. People should get to their dinner and or if you're joining us from the UK, your breakfast. Um, any last questions before we wrap it up? A few thank yous coming through. Thank you. Uh, enjoyed this live stream. Finally caught one live. Hope you do some more chats like this in the future. Um, thank you, Dave. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it as well. It was a little bit of an experiment. I'm, I'm glad the software worked out. Uh, I think it, it added a, a good new perspective, being able to use these other features. Uh, congratulations to Kelvin, who won the, uh, the book. Um, any other questions or comments before we wrap it up? Um, Robert, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks, mate. Can't wait for the tour. Brilliant. Great. I can't wait to see you over there, Robert. I'm not sure if it'll be a tour. I don't lead many tours myself, but um, we've got our fantastic team who will uh, you know, do a great job of leading you around the battlefields. You're going you to absolutely love it. Um, just thank you to everyone. I think we should wrap it up now. It's been really wonderful. Thank you for joining me. I'm glad we had a good turnout of people. Thank you for, the, um, thank you for all of the, uh, the comments. Last a couple coming through. Hope you can do one with the fella from Fleur. Um, that must be Pete Smith that we do. There's a podcast that we do on and off called Battle Walks where we walk the ground in a virtual sense. And so Pete and I do that. So uh, so he is the fella from Fleur. So um, that's a good idea. I'll get Pete on one of those live streams. We'll link him in from, from France. Um, off on the Darwin tour tomorrow. Excellent. Oh, we shouldn't forget. What's the date? The 15th today. It's the anniversary of of the fall of Singapore, so the 82nd anniversary of the fall of Singapore in 1942, and in a couple of days, in four days' time, it's the anniversary of the bombing of Darwin, so we have a tour going up. Um, so, Jessamy, enjoy that tour. It's a Darwin's a fantastic place to visit. You'll really enjoy it. Um, Tina, thank you from New Zealand. Never want to forget about our uh, Kiwi cousins. We did great things together. Thank you for all these comments as they're coming in. Um, really great. Thank you for participating. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. Uh, we will do more of them. Um, I hope to meet you too, Lane. Thank you for tuning in. It's great to have a Belgian on board. Kelvin, lest we forget. Well said. Very well said. Those words are never more poignant than today. Um, so thank you to everyone who's tuned in. And we will do more of these, so look out for them. I'll hopefully do a co- at least a couple of months. And we'll pick other famous Battlefield destinations. Um, it's been great. Thank you, everyone. I think we'll wrap it up now. Enjoy the rest of your evening if you're in Australia or New Zealand. Uh, enjoy your morning if you're in Europe. And just thank you very much for tuning in. Um, as I said, if you want this and more content, do consider subscribing um, because we do lots of extra great content on our Patreon page. Um, there's a link um there's a link in the, uh, in the bottom, um, in the show notes to, uh, to subscribe. So please do consider subscribing and getting lots of bonus content and exclusive live chats like this one. But in the meantime, thank you for tuning in and I will see you next time I am live on YouTube. And like always, as Kelvin said, lest we forget.